Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as an optimistic pessimist. I hope for the best and prepare to live like we're in Mad Max Fury Road. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Gene Sperling, the former White House economic advisor under Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. While he was shaping economic policy in the Obama White House, he disagreed with many of his peers and thought we weren't paying attention to the bigger picture of America's economic future. So he's written a new book outlining what the future should look like. It's called Economic Dignity. He couldn't be here with better timing. He was a guest on Pivot. Gene, welcome to Recode Decode. Well, thank you, Kara. I'm I'm honored to be here. Thanks. Well, this is essentially like Pivot, but less Scott uh, saying crazy things. Um, So we're going to talk about a lot of things. And I think it's really hard not to do what we're talking about in without talking about the coronavirus situation because it's the most significant impact to our economy, I think, in, in decades and decades and decades, if not 100 years. Talk a little bit about sort of the book in that context because I think you're never going to find a bigger economic moment than this one. No, I, I think that it, that's exactly right. You know, Martin Luther King in 1968 says at the Memphis sanitation workers' strike, his famous line that all labor has dignity and that the sanitation worker is as essential as the physician to uh, our well-being. And I think that probably seemed like kind of an idealistic line. Now we're suddenly living in a moment where that is so powerfully real. We're living in a moment where the delivery worker, the nursing assistant, the farm worker, the the caregiver are literally saving our lives. And I think to go back to King's frame, he was very strong that just recognizing dignity while important was empty if you did not have dignified treatment of people. So now we have to sit there and say, how is it okay that we're allowing, relying on certain workers to risk their lives for us, but, you know, we say that if you're 
a nursing assistant or orderly, you can make $14 an hour. Uh, 47% don't have a single day of paid sick leave. The treatment of farm workers in our country is, has been a disgrace for decades, but now we're seeing them at more risk of yep. uh, the coronavirus. Meatpacking uh, staff, things like that. All those things. Exactly. You know, there was a report on domestic workers that 87% of them needed masks and 17% were getting them. And some were being asked to use rubber bands and paper towels. So we are being forced to ask ourselves, while we applaud and cheer and call them heroes, are we actually treating them with economic dignity? And, you know, Carrie, you could solve a lot of this right now if you did the essential workers' bill of rights that Elizabeth Warren and Ro Kahana are calling for. And we should be doing those things on hazard pay and PPE and, and assured health care. I, I, I yeah. did a recent interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times, and she said they're not, before this, they were not considered essential at all. They were considered losers in our society because they had the lesser jobs. Secondly, they're now, rather than essential, they're sacrificial workers. They're Really, they've moved from badly paid to sacrificial. These people are, we're able to afford them, I guess. Um, and in just just this week, that, which I think is just a reprehensible bill that's moving through the Senate, is this idea that companies should not be held liable for coronavirus situations where people get sick on the job. Now, to some extent, not everyone's going to be perfect and it's not ever going to be, you know, if people go back to work, they're going to be at a certain level of risk. But the idea of not ensuring that there's some very basement level of safety or some basic level, not even basement, a basic level of safety is really amazing. They're debating that uh, in, the, in the Congress right now. So two points on that, Kara. First, on your, on your point about that people are only seeing them as essential now, I, I, I think that's true, but we still have to ask bigger questions. You know, right now, for somebody like myself, who's at that time of life where you're losing parents and uh, uh, my mother's hanging on. You know, the caregivers are as important as anything in your life. Yes, They're important yes. as anything like you're, the people take care of your children. The nursing assistant is always important. So one question is, you know, are we now recognizing that value in a meaningful way? And will we feel dissonance when this is over that less than one in 10 people who will care for one of our children is able to take a week off for their own child, that you look at ber even bereavement leave when there's a tragedy, is it right that four out of five executives can get paid leave to grieve, but one out of five lower income workers? So I think the, the question is whether this is a temporary thing or whether we are going to see this moment to realize that these have always been essential, crucial worker. I consider and them, them essential, but that depends on the, the employer in that case. It's always just the kindness of strangers, essentially. Or well, I think when you talk about an economic dignity compact, it is a decision that we as, as the United States, as government collectively, ensure these things, that we don't leave it just to the kindness of employers, but that we have a framework of $15 minimum wage and universal health care and those things that allow people to be there at those crucial moments with their family, which can be just as important to economic dignity. Now, to your second point, I don't try to make this a philosophy book, but I do mention Kant's definition that dignity means that you are never feel that you're treated as solely a means to an end, that you are treated as an end with intrinsic value in yourself. When you see us uh, requiring health workers 
to be on the job, but they have to wear garbage bags because there's not PPE. Right. When you see the president ordering people back to work in already very dangerous meat processing plants. And meat processing and poultry processing plants have always been among the most inhumane uh, workplaces mm -hmm. with high injury levels. And when you do that and you take away the liability so that there's not, that nobody even has to ensure that they're treated with basic safety, then yes, I think those workers, as one said uh, to The Guardian just yesterday uh, or the other day was, we feel like modern day slaves. We mm -hmm. are not being treated as ends in ourselves. So I think that if we're going to be putting people on the front lines or respecting them, yes, you have to have dramatic safety guarantees and provisions, but I'll tell you, in the meat processing plants and poultry plants, that's where we've had injuries at twice, 10 times as high as other industries. That's where we've had people had to wear diapers because the speed of the processing line was already so inhumane that people mm -hmm. couldn't make bathroom breaks. So this notion of treating people as pure means to ends is appalling. And to be doing it at this time is inexcusable. I would think that if you ensured nobody had liability for safety, that that would be something that would be a non-starter, that a Demo Democrat should vote no on a whole bill if something like that goes through. Why is the attempt being made to do so? I mean, there's a sort of push-pull that it either has to be corporations who have benefited enormously. I want to get to tech specifically, because a lot of these are also gig jobs, which are sort of been fueled by the tech boom. How would you score us on this situation right now? On the fact that, that that this is happening in the poultry plants, that they're using, uh, you know, garbage bags, that et cetera, et cetera, all these things that have happened, it would get, seem to give us an F in terms of how we treat workers. And then what happens? Do you really think there is a, you know, they continue to push these bills that favor corporations over individual workers? I mean, look, the important thing, if you take a perspective of economic dignity, is that people have a certain guarantee. I mean, I think that people probably do need $20 or more an hour to live. It doesn't mean you have to do it all with the minimum wage. You can do $15 minimum wage and have an expansive EITC or childcare. If you want to have the government pick up the cost of healthcare or safety costs, that's fine with me because what I care about is ultimately what is the respect that the worker itself is getting. And I think right now, you know, to go back to Martin Luther King, his line was, what good is it to be able to sit in an integrated lunch counter if you can't afford to eat? And I think that there have to be a lot of essential workers now feeling it's nice getting the applause, it's nice being called a hero, but if you're, you know, if you're an Amazon or Instacart or Trader Joe worker facing retaliation because you're trying to stand up for hazard pay or PPE, or you're a meat or uh, uh, processing worker being ordered back without real safety provisions, then that has to feel like, like an F. But, you know, I, I mean, do I have hope? I have hope. I have hope that people will see this moment in a different way. And it's one of the reasons I wanna be out pushing to say, let's not make this just about, as crucial as it is to reward essential workers now, it will be a wasted moment if it doesn't make us question our basic compact for all workers in general, particularly now that so many workers that people have ignored as they've treated them terribly economically are now literally saving the lives of tens of millions of families. 
So how do you sh- how do you get that shift in perspective? Because you have this great opening up group that is like, open up. We don't care. Like, we want to live our lives, including some of those workers, you know, who want to get back to work. Can you talk about sort of that push-pull that's been going on from an economic point of view? Well, you know, uh, one of my favorite songs my dad used to sing me was, uh, uh, you know, Jiminy Cricket, you know, When You Wish Upon a Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a great economic strategy. And I think on the reopening, <laughs> it's kind of like, if we wish it, it is so. And yeah. it's just not going to be that way. And I think that when people are opening up before they know that it's safe, that there won't be community spread before they really have universal testing and PPE and tracing, they are just wishing uh, it were so. And I think that it will not, I don't think it will be effective because I think that first of all, if people come back and it leads to a second wave, I think a lot of people will, will react in the notion of fool me once, shame on, Shame on you, fool me twice, shame on we. It could make people more risk adverse. I mean, truthfully, it doesn't matter to me what my mayor or governor or president says. I'm making decisions about the health and safety of my own family. And I think lots of people will be as well. Mm-hmm. Except that if they do come into contact with people who aren't wearing masks or, or who just insist on lack of social distancing or insist on gathering and gatherings. I mean, every time I see these gatherings, I'm like, oh, geez, this is just a little too soon. No, and you're right. And, and it will not only hurt those people and the people that they infect, but it will make people in the long run even more hesitant to come back, even more hesitant to walk into a, um, uh, into a restaurant. So I feel like that this is you know, something where you just wanted to have an economic solution and it fundamentally is a health solution issue. And until you can get the testing, the tracing, the treatment, you're not going to have people having the confidence of going back into the economy. And I think that more spread will make even the people who didn't abuse the social distancing guidelines feel more hesitant, more danger, you know, that there's more danger uh, in, in, in going back. And I think one of the things that's going to be very critical for this period in terms of economic dignity or how we treat people is this is going to be long. I mean, we, we could have 10% unemployment for a couple of years. We, we'll likely be over 20% for April and May, but this is going to be long. People are going to be in a degree of pain, and we as a country are going to have to decide, are we going to help keep not just small businesses, but everyone afloat through a period that could completely destroy their well-being at no fault of their own. All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back and how we do that, because I think you're right that we are in this for the long haul. We're talking to Gene Sperling, the author of Economic Dignity. It's a book about being dignified and with the, with the workers who are doing so much to help us in this coronavirus crisis and more. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're here with Gene Sperling, the former chief White House economic advisor under Presidents uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Uh, he has written a book called Economic Dignity. Gene, how would you assess the economic advisors to President Trump right now? What do you, they were pushing, saying everything was under control, pushing very hard for a variety of things from immigration, uh, stopping immigration to other things. Um, what would you do if you were there right now advising President Trump? And I know that wouldn't be a job you would take, but hey, come on, let's pretend. And pretend he listened to you. I would make clear first and foremost that there is no economic solution without a health solution and that a rushed health solution could make the health care worse and put us on a vicious cycle. And so therefore, you know, that's where I would start with no giddiness, no optimism, hard realism. I also believe it's very important, Kara, when you're at the White House to speak with credibility. Because there may be times where you, where you, there is credibly good news, but so many of us would not believe anything coming from this White House. And so trust is a terrible thing to waste ever, but particularly in a, in a crisis. I would say that the most important things that we can do is try to make people whole during this time. Okay. And so one option is what we've seen is a very robust unemployment provision that should try to give people close to 100% of their wages. And it shouldn't be the traditional people eligible. It should count gig workers. It should count the self-employed, everyone suffering. Because if you can make whole their paycheck, then you take care of so many other problems. They can pay their rent. They can pay their health care. They can pay their, their auto bill. It's so it is the one-size solution. Or on the other side, and this is something that uh, you've seen Congresswoman Jayapal and Bernie Sanders and people like Mark Warner propose is to actually give money to companies if they will use all of that money just to keep the lights on and to keep workers working and connected right. to their well, jobs. Well, that's what the payroll protection plan was supposed to be about, correct? That was what it was supposed to be, but it was designed in a way to, you know, lock in all the inequalities that exist from excluding African-American workers to favoring those who could get concierge services. And of course, it was to just smaller businesses. But the reason why those two are important is that if you can make people whole during this period, then they can keep their basic standard of living, their basic economic dignity. And so that when you do those things right, it takes care of a lot of the sub-issues that you might have to take care of. I also think that this would be a time where you would have 
been for universal sick leave and making health care free. And I think I would have said to the president, Mr. President, even if you don't believe in those ideals, uh, if people are going to go back to work quicker because they can't take paid sick leave, if they're forced to go back to work when they're sick, if they can't get treatment, that is going to have community spread. And that is going to make, Mr. President, your economy even worse during your election year, if that's what is what really drives them. All right. So what, what we have in place now, uh, can you assess what we have in place right now? I think we've done a few things right. I think the unemployment insurance, while they couldn't figure out how to do 100% replacement, they offered the $600 bonus. Uh, some people will say, oh, you know, some people are getting a little bit more, but when you have, th then they would if they were working. But geez, if you have 25% unemployment, that's hardly an issue. I think we have failed in a lot of ways on the payroll protection. Uh, I think the, the, the way the the way the Trump administration allowed the banks to manipulate this is really sick. I mean, if you think about it, this is a, the equivalent of a program to send economic life preservers to people drowning. You don't expect people to say, are you a client before I send that? Are you like uh, a rich client of mine? So you have to design it in a way that it has equity, where there's not an unjust enrichment, but also not people getting in the front of the line and pushing people so far to the back of the line that they can't get that. And this failure is going to mean a far higher unemployment rate. It's going to have greater suffering. And even if the president just cares about the economy, it's going to mean less demand and and uh, and even deeper falls in growth, even though to me, our greatest uh, goal at this point should be just the basic humanitarian one of helping all of us survive with dignity during this crisis. So in Europe, they're doing that with the keeping people hope. They don't do that in this country. That's not one of our tenants. It's never been our strong suit of pulling people up. Do you imagine that passing, something like that happening? You know, it's interesting. I mean, if you look in the Senate, the people supporting that, again, are Bernie Sanders, but also a centrist Democrat like Mark Warner. You've seen a Republican, Senator Hawley, proposing that. I don't know that people have come to grips with how long this is going to be. I mean, I hate to say this, but... You know, I think what people have said about even the 70% economy are right, that even when we reopen, even when we come back, even if we don't have a second wave, we're going to have to have policies that are going to last not just for two or three months, but perhaps for a couple of years. And so I still think we have seen our policymakers have to catch up to the reality, economic reality, and to hopefully ignoring the president's happy talk that somehow we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, or you know, it will be morning in America by July. What letter are you going for? W, S, what? Uh, you know, I think it's it's going to be a long U that's going to feel like an L. You know, it's not hard to have the economy come up a little, Kara. The problem is, I've said to people. You know, to say there'll be growth in the third quarter is a little bit to say like your your favorite basketball team fell behind 50 points in the second quarter, but they caught up 10 points in the third quarter. Yeah, they're, it's growing again in the right direction, but you're still down dramatically. And I think that's what we're going to face. The economy may be technically growing, but we may have unemployment at unprecedented levels uh, since the Great Depression 
for a long time. And I think that Congress, Republicans and Democrats, have to start dealing with that. And what that would mean is that when you extend these, you'd make these payroll protections stronger, more fair, you would make sure that unemployment and relief for healthcare is extended automatically until we get unemployment down to a more normal level. So we don't have to keep coming back every single you know, two months for CARES package five, six, seven, and eight. But we have this, this split government, right? You have this split government where it's impossible to do that. I mean, literally, the, the Republicans working on an anti-liability uh, bill while the Democrats are trying to push back on it or whatever the different bills are uh, that are going back and forth. Well, you know, I, I think it is true that there is a fight for the future here. And I think that for people like myself, we look at this as a moment when we get unemployment insurance expanded to gig workers or at least greater paid sick leave and say, we don't want this to be temporary. We want to lock these in. We want this to be a moment where we as our country change. And I think the problem is a lot of Republicans know that and they're willing to deny help to this economy now because they are worried about exactly what we hope for, that once people start realizing that people should be paid $15 an hour or have paid sick leave, or that a gig worker should get unemployment insurance, that they're not gonna go back. So there is a struggle, there is a battle here, and they are right that people like myself are hoping that this is not just a temporary response but a real strengthening of our social compact to ensure a degree of dignity and security for all Americans who work and contribute and do their share in any way. Do you see a need for something like the New Deal? I mean, that was a very dramatic moment. And that, you know, the only thing that returned us was another world war. But do you see something needed like that? You know, absolutely. And I think that's what... And what would you work work on? Infrastructure? Contact tracing? What? Well, I think there's different things. I think there's things you want to do for this moment. But, you know, Kara, I I defined economic dignity as, as having three pillars, that it's the capacity to care for your family, but not just to be able to put food on the table, but to be at the table, be at the bedtime story be at the bedside for your your elderly parents, to that all of us should be able to enjoy what are the most equally meaningful and joyful moments of life. But that second, all of us should be able to have first and second chances to pursue our purpose, our potential, our sense of meaning. And third, going just to the point you've mentioned on liability, that we can contribute economically with respect and without domination and humiliation. And I think when we look at the type of New Deal uh, or a new New Deal, it has to encompass all of those things. It can't just be about higher wages or or even universal health care. It has to allow people to be there for their children and kids. It needs to have a sense of universal ability to have education and support. You can't lionize the value of second chances and have a criminal justice system that does everything that prevents second chances. And, you know, the point I make in the book, too, and I try to say this to many people who maybe are more to the center or or to the right, which is you can't have an economic dignity agenda, even with these first two pillars, if you don't have these protections against domination and humiliation. I mean, one of my criticisms of the economic profession is that we don't even tend to say something's economic unless it fits into a particular economic metric. Right? Your metrics are wrong, in other well, words. Well, but the point is, is that should I have to show, if, if 40 million 
women are going to work and facing sexual harassment or abuse, or there are uh, Amazon workers who are being treated through microefficiency like robots, if there are poultry workers in the South who are having to wear diapers to work, do I have to show that that affects our labor force participation? Or do we say, as I think Teddy Roosevelt felt back then, that people should be able to work with a degree of dignity and whether or not that shows up into an economic metric, that has to be a first tier issue going forward. Because what we're seeing is it may be 100 years after the mine wars in southern West Virginia, but issues of economic concentration and power and the powerlessness of workers is still one of the major threats to a dignified work life that people face every day. And we see it right now uh, with examples like the, the meat processing workers being ordered back while their employers have no liability for their safety. Right. We're going to talk about how tech plays into this in the next section, but I'd like you to finish this section by talking about, you talk about happy speak from President Trump. Is there anything wrong with some of that, that when some of it is? Because there is some level of, you know, the only thing to fear is fear itself, the, all the speeches of Franklin Roosevelt. There is a part of it where you have to feel like, I know it sounds crazy, but it's a beautiful day today. I think everybody feels a little here in Washington, at least, and it is pretty a lot of places. Is there something about the feeling that hopeful in some, there's something good about that. Reagan played that really well. I think President Obama did the same. I think President Clinton did that. Yeah, no, I mean, as I said, when I was in the White House both times, my view was that the president should be at kind of the upper credible range of optimism, that you don't want to feed despair. You don't want your words to be a reason that you create like downward cycles, but you still have to keep it within the range of credibility. And I think that's what a president should do. So, you know, and I look, I think Andrew Cuomo's done that very well, right? I mean, Andrew, you know, Governor Cuomo, goes out, he's tough, he's hard, he's the disciplinarian dad at times, but he's also reminding people, we will get through it. You know, this will not always be, you know, we're going to do everything we can. So what I would say is you want to be on the optimistic side of the credible range. But when you go outside the credibility range, then your word has little meaning. And this is true in a financial crisis as well. If you say, don't worry, the fundamentals are strong, you know, America's doing well, and then people see that you were not telling the truth, they they won't trust you again. It's the boy who cries wolf lesson that we learn. So yes, you need to be a bit optimistic, but I think I don't feel that when I hear the White House now because I don't believe anything they're saying. What I'd like to see them is be credible, be honest, uh, but yes, it's okay for the president to try to remind us that we will get through it, that we will see better days again. Right. It's contained. I don't know if you know that. Larry Kudlow said it was contained. I'm not sure if you remember. Yes, of course. February 28th was, was a great day in American White House. The president called it a hoax. Uh, my successor, Larry Kudlow, said, buy the dip, you know, buy the stock market. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, the chief of staff said it was a conspiracy. I mean, that's, th those were consequential moments. They remain consequential moments. I have no question people are going to be dying because of an unrealistic happy talk and wishing it were so instead of recognizing, as I think we would have, not just in 
the Obama and Clinton administration, but I think in any credible Republican administration as well, that they would have recognized in January, if they don't get ahead of the PPE, if they don't get ahead of the testing, that no economic solution is going to work. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about text roles and this about gig workers and where it's going and automation and AI. We're here with Gene Sperling. He was a former economic advisor to the Clinton and Obama White Houses, and he's written a book called Economic Dignity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're here with Gene Sperling. He is a very well-known economic advisor to President Clinton and President Obama. And he also has written a book called Economic Dignity. I want to talk a little bit about the gig economy and the impact of tech, because obviously things that are coming right in the middle of this pandemic, there are other trends that were happening, AI, uh, robotics, automation, uh, changes in autonomous driving, all kinds of technological leaps that we're making that have an impact. We have a company, Amazon, which is probably the most important company right now in the United States, um, which has sort of been, has has its... uh, has itself wrapped around the axle of its workers and trying to sort of recover in that regard. Talk, and then, of course, there's companies like Uber and others who had depended on uh, the gig economy workers who are now seeing huge downturns in their business, but at the same time rely heavily on inexpensive workers. Um, talk a little bit about the impact of tech and where you think it's going. So I, there's a few things that concern me about tech and this frame or aspiration of economic dignity. You know, one is obviously the increase of the gig workers, but I will say, Kara, that it is kind of a shame that it actually took the gig worker revolution to make us realize that that there were workers that suffered this kind of insecurity. You know, I, I call them the pre-gig workers. You, you right. know, the day, Uber, the day UberX is launched in 2012, there's 2 million of those workers and about less than 10% of them have health care and pensions. Most taxi cab drivers didn't right. have those right. type of protections. So I think there is a large pre-gig and gig workers. And I think that solving this is going to be one of the critical things we have to do to have a, a basic frame of economic dignity. And I think that the uh, tech community has to get on board and support the legislation that would ensure that. Secondly, well, why? They like it this way. They've gotten rich doing this. I mean, are they off the backs of these workers, I think a lot of people feel that. I feel that. Uh, I feel I have too. I've gotten rides that I shouldn't have afforded. Right. You know, and that's where I could spend forever arguing with them. Or you could have a fifteen dollar minimum wage, or you could have universal health care. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm for shaming companies. I'm for encouraging companies. But what I'm really for are having the laws that ensure that people provide workers with dignity and empower, therefore, the workers in the tech, the executives in the tech world who want to promote that, who won't feel that they're undercut. But a second thing that disturbs me in the tech world is the segmentation of jobs, the the, uh, haves and have nots, the lords and serves. The notion that you have places like 
you know, Facebook, Google, great companies. They may even treat their contractors fairly well. But why are they contractors at all? Why can't the food service workers, why can't the information workers be full workers? What we see is that they're, they're treated as second-class citizens in a way that is is against economic dignity. It's not just wages and benefits. It's who can talk on their cell phone, who can come to take your daughter to work day. And the third thing that concerns me is that a point I make in the book is that economic dignity is not just about workers. It's also about us as consumers. It's about us as small business owners. And I think that my third principle that you can contribute with respect, without domination and humiliation, I think is being defied by the economic concentration in big tech from Facebook to Google to Amazon. And what you're seeing is, to me, a real analogy to what we saw uh, with you know, Rockefeller and Vanderbilt, that your ability to control the key essential network or platform of your time allows you to compete with brute force, with domination, with humiliation. And I feel that is happening. And I feel like when we're thinking about our values for antitrust, we should have a bias not just towards competition, we should have a bias towards any mechanism that might allow a large big tech company to use just their sheer force and power as opposed to innovation to win. And people will say you're destroying competition, but you know, what I try to say is it's about how you structure competition. There are geniuses in the big tech companies. I want them to be figuring out how to compete, to innovate, not figuring out how to steal information, not figuring out how to knock out a, or, or buy up a smaller competitor. So we really have to make a choice. What type of competition do we want? Is it one that promotes economic dignity or allows this type of brute force? Yeah, you really are. You hit their nose in the head with the contractors. It's really quite, whether it's the content moderators, whether it's the people that provide food, it really is um, something that they don't notice in their beautiful worlds. Like, it, it, I call them Dobbies, and they make fun of me when I say that, you know, from Harry Potter. I'm like, you got a lot of Dobbies here, and you're all the lords and ladies, you know, and they're like, what are you talking about? We're really nice to them. I'm like, they don't have job. They don't have, con they, they don't have the stuff you have. Why don't they have, you know, anyway, and, and it's, it's sad, really Kara, interesting because yeah. they, they feel like, well, they get to work in this beautiful place. And I was like, Dobby gets to work in beautiful places. It's, it's a really interesting mentality that they have. It is an unfortunate mentality. And it's kind of sad when you see like the contracts who want to be identified with these great American yeah. companies and used to be. You know, Neil Irwin in the New York Times had a great piece once about the two janitors and talked about the janitor at Kodak who rises all the way up and why that is impossible now. They're not able to have the networking, the opportunity, the skills. But again... As much as I would pound on big tech to do that, I'd rather create laws that kind of make them. We have non-discrimination laws in retirement. Why not have a non-discrimination law that says, if somebody is serving your company for more than half their time, you can't give them different benefits than you give your own workers. If you did that, I think that would make people take more of those workers in-house and they would be treated more as first-class citizens. That's a trend, but it's a policy choice. It's not something we have to accept. What about, uh, you know, the making jobs that create this? The, these, Whether it's an Uber, it's an automation job, whether it's warehouses, you know, robotics and things like that. What culpability or what responsibility, really, not culpability, that does tech have 
in figuring out how to find other jobs or do they not at all? They just invent and that's just the way it goes, just the way we went from farms to manufacturing, we went from horses to auto. It's just the way it goes. It's the way, you know, progress marches on and crushes some people in the interim. Right. And I think that goes to what is your ultimate economic aspiration? If your aspiration is just we have a market economy and we let efficiency run its course, then that's what you're going to do. If you have a principle that everybody should be able to live dignified economic lives, then you're going to ask at every turn, what could we do? Could we have an ARPA, you know, AI that gives money to people who figure out how AI can create jobs? But secondly, uh, you know, and I wanted to say this, which is I think sometimes there is a false assumption that if there is more automation and more robots and more wealth that decreases the number of jobs demanded, that that means there won't be enough jobs for everybody. And I think that's fundamentally wrong because there are so many jobs needed for us to be a dignified economy. There are so many more direct service professionals who could be helping young adults with autism, so many people who could be providing quality dementia and childcare, helping people get out of prison, finding jobs. And I've called them double dignity jobs. Those are the jobs that we could pay more, offer more career mobility, make them more dignified work, and while giving economic dignity to millions of people. And so we have a shortage of those jobs. So if we have more wealth, and more automation, my view would be, let's take some of that wealth and create the kind of double dignity jobs that could give people meaningful work, meaningful sense of contribution, and start helping so many of the families and people that we leave on their own, even when we're not in the pandemic. Families who do heroic things to help their children with disabilities or autism, but get so little help from us. People making heroic efforts to come back from long-term unemployment or the criminal justice system and get so little help. So I just want to say, I wish we had more wealth so uh, we could have even more jobs, more jobs that are dignified jobs that help other people have dignity in their lives. So one of the things I wrote about this week in the Times was about the big tech bigger than ever, and I fear them more than ever. Uh, I think some politicians agree that there st- we still need to keep on the road of uh, a regulatory road, and the, and the, there's some people who feel that antitrust is the answer. How do you imagine breaking up these companies if you're comparing them to the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers? Well, I think you know my comparison there was the degree that if these platforms become so essential that people have to be on them and when they are and so you know whether you're going to break up the companies or put structures that limit what you know that you, your ability to be a buyer or seller or require interoperability or ensure non-discrimination you know I'm not trying to say there's a one size fits all But if I was recommending to a new president, I would say have a bias for competition, have a bias against people being able to dominate platforms and allow them to uh, uh, be able to just win by brute force. I mean, listen, I recognize that there's great value in many of these companies, and I've gotten great value in my life of them. But, you know, it's not clear to me that for Facebook to provide the service that most people like, they need to own WhatsApp and Instagram. And it's not clear to me, I I think it is clear to me, that when they were making bad decisions about 
political ads or bad decisions about privacy, we would have been a better country if place, if Instagram and WhatsApp could have offered competitive alternatives. And I think everybody would be better and stronger. And again, okay. I don't I mean, think that makes you anti-competition or big right. government. It's about how we structure competition. Right. Uh, no, you were there when you could have done something. I, I've, one of the things that I do think the Obama administration did not get enough attention for is the lack of of holding these companies back right when they were growing. I mean, now we have to deal with them as these monsters, essentially. I don't say monsters, these giants. How about that? It was a very friendly, tech-friendly. Yeah. You, know, you had Eric Schmidt showing up and having drinks or whatever. And it was a lot of back and forth between the tech industry and the Obama administration. Was there too much cooperation? I, fe- I always felt there was. And, and why did that happen from your perspective? Because you all could have done something. And you didn't, you didn't do anything about Google. You didn't do anything at the FTC, the, uh, the Justice Department. Nothing happened. Well... You know, I, I, I think there's fairness to that. I think, I think it's, it's trickier in some ways. You know, first of all, I think we spend a lot of time relitigating what exactly did you know in 2011 or 2012. And, you know, it is hard, too, because even if you're in the White House, these things are being controlled by places you're not supposed to talk to, the FTC, the antitrust division of the Justice Department. So there is a degree of independence. But I think in some fairness, a lot of these things became more apparent in the last few years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we can relitigate about, you know, should Obama have known more or done more? And I think it's fair to raise, completely fair to raise those issues. But I think the right question is, with what we know now, with what we've seen, what type of an economy do we want? That even when we have these big tech giants that really do provide a lot of value in our life, you know, uh, from Apple to Amazon to Facebook to Google that so many of us use, what are the dangers and what are the structures we wouldn't place? And I think one thing you've said, which I think is right, uh, that you've said before is you can't rely on the kindness or the good spirit of others. People will compete in the way they are allowed to compete. We can yell at the, the people there, but it's up for us to put structures in place and I think you were right that we didn't see the what could happen with big tech. Uh, whether we should have been able to see that early enough or not, we can debate. The fact is, we can well, see I'm gonna keep debating it. now. I'm going to keep debating because it was apparent. I mean, I, I wrote stuff back when they when Google was bigger. When you when I know you're not supposed to do the FTC, but there I know how Washington works. There are ways of signaling. This was a very tech friendly administration at, at, to the point of. I found embarrassment, like in terms of not seeing that this was coming. And you could see these numbers with just Google. Google, of course, was the one, Facebook sort of came, definitely came up later. Um, but you could have seen it with Google very simply, these search numbers, these, the, the, you know, how important this was the, to the economy as a whole. Um, same thing with, uh, with Amazon. I don't think, you know, you saw Walmart do it. You could, you could see it happening. Um, I think Amazon is also more like Facebook, slightly later and slightly more clear about what kind of dominance they were going to have. But what was work within, I'd love to know in the administration, why not? Why not say something? Because they never said word one until the end. He started to talk about it at the end, you know what I mean, of his administration. Well, I think the point I'm raising is an important point for the next administration, which is how do you allow the policymaking processes at the White House? I mean, despite what you say, the fact is somebody like myself, you don't call and lobby an independent agency and you right. certainly don't call the Justice Department. You can set the tone from the White House. This yes. is, these are too big. I think people are going to have to figure out how to set the tone and have to have 
to both have a policy perspective from the White House and to choose people and send the signals as to what the right policy is, even if right. the political operation shouldn't be intervening. But, you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to over argue this with you. Right. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that 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 we missed a lot of this, that we didn't see some of these dangers, that there was too much friendliness. It would seem to me that this became more apparent with time. Uh, and there's no doubt we were focused on the, you know, saving the economy from the Great Recession. Yeah, no, but, the happy aspect. You know, but but my view, aspects. my view, Kara, is that you know, and part of like trying to talk about what your end goal should be is none of us should hold on or dig into past policy positions. We can debate what one should have done or should have known, but I think we know now that this is a real issue in our economy. Okay. It threatens our basic values. And I think what has been good is to see the rise of a, of a kind of new antitrust policy that is reminding people it's not just about price and consumer welfare, that these values of economic power and preventing domination and humiliation were part of what drove the, you know, our initial antitrust laws, and they should infuse our values. So now you were as well. for some active antitrust, new, fresh thinking on antitrust Absolutely. to some of these companies. Which companies? Look, I, I don't want to say that I know exactly what to do. I think that it is hard for me to believe that Facebook needs to own and control both WhatsApp and Instagram. And I say that as somebody who has very close friends like Sheryl Sandberg who worked there, but they know I feel this way. And I understand their arguments, but I just feel that the benefits you get from the competitive pressure you know, are important. And people can debate, you know, should they have bought it? Did they make it better? You know, you can debate those things, but the question we have right now is, how should we be structuring going forward? Are we allowing too much economic power to resort, not only in one company, but I think like in Mark Zuckerberg's case, in one person? And I think the idea that those values have to take a second seat to some kind of traditional antitrust policy developed over the years, a lot by Robert Bork and the school, Chicago School of Economics, you know, should take a back seat. And I think the people like Lena Khan and Tim Wu, and Barry mm -hmm. Lynn, who have, you know, I, I don't think they should be treated as outside the mainstream. I think they are trying to bring back the actual driving values of antitrust. And really, not to plug the book again, but you know, Go part ahead. of my point was that when you got to the progressive era, there was this great realization that all of our values of individual liberty and dignity that were protections from the government. And now people were realizing that if you don't have those protections from the private sector, they actually become meaningless in your life. And this leads not only to the rise of child labor laws and minimum wage laws and safety laws, but this is, I think, what drives us to start breaking up the trust. Teddy Roosevelt is not affected by some economic theory of consumer welfare. He's affected as the uh, state legislator and the chief of police of New York in going through the tenements making cigars and seeing humiliating conditions and that there was no ethic or value or respect for the dignity of workers in the people who were making profits and that it was up to government to set those rules to ensure that level of economic dignity. So ensuring that th there's not too much economic domination in the private sector is not a new or fringe issue. Sure. It's the driving 100%. issue of the progressive era. 
Yeah, it should still be. You know, the only thing I think that could send that signal, if you were talking about signals being sent, would be Vice President Elizabeth Warren. I think that's that would just make everyone in Silicon Valley come up with the sweats well, like you can't believe. I'm a big Elizabeth Warren fan, but I have yeah. many friends who are on that list, so I will stay relatively I'm neutral I'm just saying, that's the only one that'll really send them into shivers, I'll tell you. She just drives them but, you know, crazy. I think that the place where progressives... <laughs> I get a lot of pleasure from it, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just a but you know, I think the interesting thing is for all the debates we've had, I think you are seeing uh, a movement and, and that, you know, someone like Joe Biden maybe didn't lead this antitrust movement, but he is very sympathetic to it. I think his administration will be. I think he has spoken out pretty strongly al- already. So I think that this is going to be a big issue. And also, if you have divided government, there'll be a lot of focus on what an administration could do administratively. And taking well, on economic concentration will be one of them. And I hope yeah. that we do have united government, at least uh, if it's with a big D in front of it. All right, last, very last question, very quick. What are the three things people can do as leaders to bring economic uh, dignity to their workers? Three things, really quick. One is to support the higher minimum wage in healthcare so that nobody can say that the reason that they don't treat their workers with economic dignity is their competitors won't. If that's what you feel, then have a floor that ensures everybody has to provide that level. Support that legislatively. That allows you to treat your workers with dignity without having competitive disadvantage. Secondly, this kind of micro-efficiency, I think, uh, um, uh, Matt Desmond has a beautiful article about how this came a lot from from cotton growing in, during slavery. Mm-hmm. This whole microefficiency you see at Amazon, et cetera. If you have a workforce that does not recognize that people get sick, need to get a call home, get depressed, need to take time off, go to a school uh, conference, then you are not treating your workers with dignity. So start with asking what should be basic to all of us as being human beings. And third, do not buy into these structures of first and second class citizenship. People understand that some people will make more, maybe have bigger houses, but there should be a level that we're of, of, a level of dignity, a level where we're all on the same team, just like on a good football team, the backup guard still has to run the same amount as the starting quarterback. There should be a level of dignity when it comes to taking time off for family, for bereavement, for care, that is the same for the executive as the lowest paid person in that company. Those are things I would say to leaders to ensure that we have an economy that lives up more to this vision of economic dignity. Excellent. Jeff Bezos, I hope you're listening. Probably not. Anyway, Gene, thank you so much. It's a terrific book. It's called Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, who's a well-known economic advisor to many a president and perhaps in the future. Thank you so much for being on the show, Gene. That's an honor. Thank you, Kara. Everybody should buy the book. I'm going to send my copy to Mark Benioff. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Gene, where can people find you online? Oh, they can find me online on Twitter at Gene B. Sperling. 
Gene B. Sperling, okay? And then you're on Facebook and et cetera, et cetera. No, I'm actually not. No, me neither. I am, but I'm not. <laughs> but my daughter, my daughter wanted to help with my book and was going to create an in- <laughs> Instagram uh, account for Story. me. I, I need to check and see how that's going. Oh, dear, Gene. you got to go right to TikTok. Just <laughs> skip Instagram and move right to TikTok. That's what I would give you that advice. Uh, make sure uh, to check out our other podcast, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.